Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes as we go through recent developments in the public safety, labor, and employment world. Now, I have a bunch of cases that I do want to talk about. Uh, as I mentioned, oh, about six months or so ago, uh, federal courts had slowed down to a crawl, largely because of the impact of COVID. Well, that logjam in the federal courts is breaking, and we're starting to see a whole bunch of public safety, labor, and employment cases. But I would be remiss if I didn't start off this podcast with yet one more discussion about vaccination. Vaccinations come to the forefront, right? And over the course of the last week, we have a number of cities, most prominently San Francisco, uh, that have imposed mandatory vaccine requirements for all employees. Uh, And that seems to be a trend that is spreading quite a bit. We also have a number of other cities uh, and states, New York State, for example, New York City, uh, Los Angeles appears to be in the same camp, that are saying you either have to be vaccinated or uh, provide a weekly COVID test. The federal government appears to be going in exactly the same direction. And I know just from correspondence that we get here at LRIS or at my law firm that there are just dozens of cities and counties and states around the country that are thinking of having some sort of vaccine program, whether it's get vaccinated or you can't come to work, or whether it's get vaccinated or get tested. So I just want to do a brief review of the state of the law as we know it now uh, on vaccines in the public safety world. And by the way, very, very important decision that I will come to that was released last week by California's Public Employment Relations Board, which is arguably the best and most thorough uh, labor relations board in the country and is certainly looked to by other labor boards as influential. So let me do this in the form of frequently asked questions, because all of these questions are frequently asked, I can assure you of that. First of all, can a public employer mandate that employees get vaccinated, just in general? Is there any problem with a mandatory uh, vaccine requirement? And the answer is uh, no. Um, subject to some other things that I'll talk about, collective bargaining and the ADA and and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. But subject to these uh, exceptions, there is no restriction on a public safety employer imposing a mandatory vaccine program. Now, slight caveat there. There are some states, I'm in one in Oregon, that have specific laws that may prohibit mandatory vaccine for some law enforcement, uh, firefighters, and corrections employees. You need to uh, check with your lawyers in your state to see whether or not you've got any such restrictions. But as a broad general principle, it is safe to say there's nothing that absolutely prohibits uh, a public safety employer from requiring that all employees be vaccinated or the less stringent approach requiring vaccination or testing. Uh, Second question we get, if the employee declines to be vaccinated, 
can the public employer require the employee to be tested for COVID-19? Um, and the answer to that clearly is yes, once again, subject to collective bargaining. Uh, federal law specifically allows for COVID-19 testing in the workplace. The EEOC has a very helpful uh, set of FAQs on the on COVID-19 in general uh, in the workplace, but also uh, on the specifics of testing. Uh, we will post a link to those FAQs with the show notes for the, this edition of First Thursday. But bottom line, uh, if the employee says, uh, hey, I don't want the vaccine, the employer can compel the employee to be tested likely again subject to collective bargaining. Uh, third question, we're, and we're starting to see this more and more. We didn't used to get this question at all. What happens if an employee gets sick after being vaccinated? So in other words, the employee believes there's something about the vaccine that has caused the employee to get sick. And uh, the answer to that is, Really, the only remedy that the employee has is to file a workers' compensation claim. Uh, now, there may be COVID leave that is available through the employer. That's on an employer-by-employer -employer basis. It's the federal COVID leave has expired. But the, the employee's basic recourse here is to take the position that, look, uh, testing is a job requirement. So when I got tested and I got sick as a result of being tested, that's a worker's compensation illness or injury. There will, of course, be the issue of proof. The employee is going to have to prove uh, that whatever their illness is was caused by the vaccine, uh, because I don't actually know of any statutes that call for, call for presumptive causation uh, for employees who get sick as a result of taking the vaccine. Uh, but assuming you can get over that, uh, that hurdle of proof, that sounds like a pretty decent workers' compensation claim. Uh, fourth question, do employees have any medical privacy rights when an employer requires proof of vaccination? Answer, yes. That one's easy. Uh, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act has privacy provisions and the existence of vaccination or non-vaccination uh, is a medical fact and any records associated with that have to be kept private under the ADA. And that means they're only accessible, uh, the EEOC tells us, by employer representatives who have a need to know in order to work out reasonable accommodations for the employee. Fifth question, uh, if the employer wants to bargain or is forced to bargain, over either mandatory vaccination or mandatory proof of vaccination or requires uh, periodic COVID testing, whatever it might be, if there's an obligation to bargain, what do public safety unions want to bargain about? Uh, and we've now got a little bit of data here, right? This is not all hypothesis because there is bargaining going on around the country over mandatory vaccine programs and their kin. So there's a lot of things that public safety unions are bringing up. First of all, the issue of discipline. Uh, can you be terminated for uh, refusing to take a vaccine? 
the safety of the vaccine and the circumstances, the conditions under which the vaccine is given, uh, whether health benefits will cover the cost of the vaccine. Is there going to be leave that is available for obtaining the vaccination? What about leave for the side effects of the vaccination? If you're going to have testing as an alternative to uh, vaccination, what's the frequency of the testing? And of course, even though it's covered by the ADA, unions want to talk about privacy issues, um, both with respect to vaccine verification and testing for the non-vaccinated. Uh, and we'll post a list of all these, by the way, uh, with the show notes. There's there's many others, and that, but you can imagine every concern that an employee has about a vaccination program, a union's going to want to bargain about it. Um, sixth question, don't employees have a constitutional right to refuse COVID-19 vaccinations? Uh, that's the one we probably hear more than anything else. Uh, this is unconstitutional. You can't force me to get a vaccination. And 116 years ago, the Supreme Court said that argument is wrong. In the face of a pandemic, the Supreme Court said there is no constitutional problem with a compulsory vaccination program. The decision there is one called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. We will post it with our show notes as well. Seventh, uh, say the employer has a mandatory vaccination program. Uh, what? Uh, does it have to provide reasonable accommodations for employees on a religious or disability ground? Uh, yes, that's very clearly the case. The ADA requires reasonable accommodation for people with a disability and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and, uh, and a variety of religious discrimination statutes at the federal level also call for a reasonable accommodation. Now, caution about that. Uh, the uh, employer has a right to insist that the employee prove that they have a disability that would somehow be impacted by a vaccine or on the religious front that they belong to a religion or follow religious beliefs uh, that has bona fide established tenets and those tenets prohibit the taking of a vaccine. The employer is going to have a right to have that proof. And if the employee can't prove that, there's not going to be a need to reasonably accommodate the individual, either on religious grounds or on disability grounds. Also, uh, remember the basic law of reasonable accommodation under the ADA. If an employee presents a disability uh, or on the religious uh, side, pre uh, presents a religious belief, there likely are going to be a variety of reasonable accommodations. The employer gets to pick which accommodation it wants. And that may not be an accommodation that the employee is particularly thrilled with. Uh, there's a, a Fifth Circuit case from 2020. It did not in, it involve the COVID-19 vaccine. It instead involved a, a combination vaccine for other conditions. 
The case is called Horvath versus City of Leander. And we'll post this with the show notes as well. Uh, and this is the case of a firefighter who said, my religion prohibits me getting a vaccine. And the employer offered the firefighter several accommodations. The two that the court's decision focused on were, first of all, okay, you, you can stay out uh, as a, a line firefighter doing suppression work, but you have to be masked 24-7, uh, and uh, you have to undergo a frequent testing. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have to do special cleaning around your work site and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, alternatively, you can work without a mask in all of those conditions, but you're going to be in a code enforcement uh, position, albeit one where you get a lot less overtime and you can't work a 24 on 48 off schedule. And the firefighter said, neither of those are reasonable accommodations uh, because I don't want to have to work with a mask on a 24-7 basis. And and I don't want to have to give up my preferred shift and my overtime. And the court said, you know what? Either of those are reasonable accommodations and, uh, and ended up upholding the discharge of the firefighter. And in doing so said, uh, it's not the employee's proposed accommodation that matters here. So long as the employer's proposed modification or reasonable accommodation is reasonable, the employer can select that accommodation. Eighth question, uh, and this, this is one that is actually being pushed by a lot of anti-vaccination groups pushed in the courts. Uh, there are these lawsuits that are filed all over the place. I don't know of one for a police, fire, or corrections. I know of a lot for students, and I know of a lot for uh, in particular, hospital employees, but I don't know any of these lawsuits yet in public safety. And what the lawsuits say is uh, these vaccines, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, they are all authorized by the Food and Drug Administration on an emergency basis. And there's this phalanx of federal statutes as to what has to happen when you have an emergency use authorization for any medical product. And vaccine is sure, certainly a medical product. And one of these statutes says uh, that the producer, if you will, of the vaccine uh, has to notify the individual who's receiving the vaccine that this is uh, only approved for experimental use and that the individual has the right to refuse the vaccine. Uh, and so th these groups that are filing these lawsuits are saying that means an employer cannot compel the employee to get vaccinated. And so far, the courts that have taken a look at this, and I know of two in particular, the most important of which is a, a federal trial court in Texas. It's called Bridges versus Houston Methodist Hospital. And um, we will post that in the show notes as well. All the courts, all two, that have looked at this have said that argument is wrong, uh, that the FDA statutes concerning uh, emergency use authorization do not impose any restrictions on employers. They may impose uh, restrictions on 
uh, for example, the manufacturers of the, uh, any product that is authorized on an emergency use basis, but they don't require an employer or, or they don't require an employer to say to employees, we are going to have a voluntary vaccine program. Employers can have a mandatory vaccine program for emergency use vaccines. And the way the federal court in Texas ended its opinion, I think, is really striking. Uh, and what the court said was, no one is forcing these employees, these are hospital employees, by and large nurses, no one is forcing them to get vaccine, vaccinated. They can always go look for another job. So that's where we are with respect to vaccines today. Uh, I expect a lot of developments in the next uh, one to two weeks on this whole front. Uh, I as the particularly as the Delta variant, which turns out to be, uh, at least as far as the scientists are concerned, hundreds of times more contagious than the original variant of COVID-19. So as the Delta variant just kind of rips through our country right now, I think you can expect to see more and more mandatory vaccination programs or mandatory vaccination or testing programs. And everybody needs to know the law on this, right? We don't want to be in the situation where we have a firefighter or a corrections officer or a law enforcement officer saying, uh, I've got a constitutional right not to be vaccinated and watch them lose their job over that incorrect position. Okay, on to the cases. Uh, first case I want to talk about reminds me ever so much of uh, this amazing quote from a French author by the name of, he was a poet mostly, uh, by the name of Anatole France. Uh, and the quote is, the law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges. Goes on a bit, but you get the theme. This is a case involving New York firefighters that reaches what is probably absolutely the right result under the law, but makes no sense whatsoever. The result makes no sense whatsoever. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the ongoing issue of uh, firefighters, uh, particularly uh, black firefighters and beards. Uh, and this is a case that comes out of the Fire Department of New York. It involves three men, uh, Salik Bay, Terrell Joseph, and Stephen Seymour. I'm sorry, fourth man, Clyde Phillips. Sorry to leave you out, Clyde. Uh, they're all black men who are firefighters, and they all suffer from a condition known as pseudofolliculitis barbi. PFB is what I'll call it when I'm talking about this case. Uh, and this is a condition that results in persistent irritation and pain following shaving. Uh, the effects of PFB for someone who shaves uh, can be anywhere from mild to pretty serious, uh, skin irritation, bruising, boils, and even can be severe, permanent facial scarring. There are some treatments that can be used to help with some of PFB's effects, uh, but it's still medically recommended 
The treatment of choice for PFB is don't shave down to the skin. Okay to have a small beard, uh, a beard that's even, you know, a centimeter or two in length, but don't shave down to the skin. To the skin. PFB is widely spread. Estimates are, and I wish I could narrow this down, but I keep seeing these numbers, uh, are that PFB affects between 45 and 85% of black men. Okay, that's, uh, that's the medical side of it. Now what about the law? Uh, under New York state law, the Fire Department of New York must comply with OSHA regulations. There is an OSHA regulation that provides that if a respirator doesn't seal snugly under the mask wearer's face, uh, there's a risk that it will be able to keep out harmful air. And the regulation goes on to say, and I'm quoting, facial hair cannot come between the sealing surface of the respirator's face piece and the face. So you've got that, you've got uh, you've got OSHA that has a regulation that says uh, you cannot have any hair between a respirator, a mask, uh, and the individual's skin. Uh, then you have a New York statute that says uh, the Fire Department of New York must comply with the OSHA regulation. And then you've got the Fire Department of New York. So what has it been doing? It's the one that's uh, employed these four gentlemen. Well, it's had a, a written grooming policy for a long time, and in 2015, it began to offer medical accommodations to firefighters with PFB. And those accommodations allowed the firefighters to maintain uh, closely cropped beards, one millimeter to one quarter of an inch in length, uncut by a razor. Uh, and to make sure that this accommodation was safe. Uh, what FDNY did was to require all firefighters uh, to, who wanted to take advantage of this exception uh, to pass a fit test uh, and to do so on, you know, on a repeated basis. And that's a standardized test designed by OSHA to ensure that uh, a breathing apparatus uh, actually works, that it properly seals against the mask wearer's face. Uh, and only when a firefighter with facial hair was unable to pass the fit test, uh, what, excuse me, was able to pass the fit test, would FDNY allow them to return to uh, suppression duties. 20 firefighters took part in this program, including the four that we're talking about here. Uh, and there were zero adverse safety incidents over the years in which they were participating. How many years? About three, because in 2018, uh, FDNY discovers the state law that uh, incorporates OSHA standards and discovers the OSHA regulation. And as a result, it revokes the program under which the firefighters could have this reasonable accommodations. The firefighters sued. Uh, they claimed that the city's change policy violated the ADA uh, and also consisted of disparate impact discrimination in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and that, of course, would be because 
PFB disproportionately affects black men. Uh, and that suit goes before a federal trial court and eventually uh, makes it up to the Federal Court of Appeals, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Second Circuit reaches this result that I think is correct on the law, but boy, really. Uh, the court says, look, we can't go along with the firefighters' proposed accommodation. What did they propose? Going back to the old uh, short crop beard, I've heard them referred to as shadow beards, uh, with the periodic fit testing. We can't go back, uh, the, the court says you can't go back to the OSHA standards because the protection standard from OSHA, and I'm quoting, clearly requires firefighters to be clean shaven where an SCBA seals against their face. We find the regulation to be unambiguous and we can end our analysis there. And the court goes on to say uh, that an accommodation isn't reasonable if it is specifically prohibited by a binding safety regulation promulgated by a federal agency. So what do you end up with here? You end up with these uh, four firefighters. The suggestion in the court's opinion is they're not going to be fired, but they will be taken off line duties. These four firefighters uh, who for three years had no problems. They passed all the fit tests. There was never an incident where they were actually out on a fire scene where there was any problem with the fit of the mask where they were exposed to uh, anything other than what they should have been exposed to. So these four firefighters who have performed perfectly and their masks perform perfectly are now being told they can't be on the line. Uh, that just Isn't that just kind of a ridiculous result? Where's the solution? Uh, I think the solution's got to be at OSHA, right? Uh, I think OSHA has to have some sort of exception for masks when the masks work. Now, it should be up to the employees to perform or to, to prove uh, that their alternative is one that maintains a safe workplace. I totally get that. But to foreclose even their abilities to prove that, that's just simply wrong. At least you know, wrong as a matter of principle. Not wrong as a matter of law, but wrong as a matter of principle. Next up, we've got an arbitration decision in Michigan. It's a, I just love this arbitration decision because of all of the different issues that it raises about arbitration in general. Uh, and the way the arbitrator resolves them is uh, generally, I think, uh, it, the way virtually every arbitrator would resolve the same thing um, or the same issue, but they all come up in this one case. So it's a lot of, it was a lot of fun to read, and I hope it's going to be interesting to listen to a description of it. So this is a case that involves the city of Grand Rapids in Michigan and the Grand Rapids Police Officers Association. And the whole dispute starts in 2019 when the chief tells the association work performed by uh, three employees. They're in the property management, traffic, and detectives unit. 
that's going to be transferred from police officers to civilian employees who are outside of the association's bargaining unit. Uh, the association files a grievance and the dispute ends up in arbitration. So uh, this is subcontracting. The labor relations definition of subcontracting is when an employer assigns work that either has been or logically should be performed by members of the bargaining unit to somebody who's outside of the bargaining unit. Now that somebody may be, as it is here, a civilian employee. So for example, if uh, an employer civilianized the, uh, civilianizes the dispatch function, that's subcontracting. It may be assignment to a private contractor. Uh, there's been a lot of subcontracting in the fire service, for example, of some basic aid responses to outfits like AMR and different ambulance groups. Uh, it may be the assignment of the bargaining unit work to uh, supervisors who are not represented by the union. That's a particular type of subcontracting that's called skimming. But all of those are subcontracting, and the union is saying in this case that uh, what's gone on here is subcontracting, and uh, the question is, is it prohibited by the collective bargaining agreement? Then the arbitrator starts in, and he starts in on some of these basic principles that I think are really important. And, uh, and this arbitrator, I'm not familiar with him, his name is Dobry, uh, has a bit of a sense of humor, uh, as you will hear. Uh, so both sides come into the arbitration and they say to the arbitrator, we want you to consider this opinion or that opinion that this arbitrator or that arbitrator has rendered in the past. And the arbitrator says, uh, I don't think so. Uh, and the, the quote from the arbitrator is, uh, the other arbitrator's wise counsel on matters of policy is entitled to at least consideration. They are at the same level as me, and I am not bound to follow their decisions. So I'll read the opinions, but I'm not going to be bound by them. And in fact, that's what arbitrators do. Uh, now, the closer the other arbitrator's opinions are to your particular situation, the more influence they're going to have over an arbitrator. So for example, an arbitrator deciding the same issue here, a subcontracting issue between Grand Rapids and the POA, uh, the same issue with the same employer and the same union, that's obviously going to be the most persuasive. Uh, and then you move away from that, right? It could be an arbitrator deciding something with the same employer and a different union, or the same union and a different employer, uh, or heaven forbid, it could be another arbitrator deciding something involving a different employer and a different union. Gotta tell you a little war story here. I started off my career representing lumber workers, and one of my first cases, it wasn't in Portland, it was up in a very small town in northern Idaho where there was a mill. Uh, and it was a contract interpretation case that involved overtime, an overtime issue. Did the, did the right uh, employee in the bargaining unit uh, get the overtime? And the employer wanted to submit into evidence an arbitration opinion involving a different employer and a different union in a different state about a collective bargaining provision 
that was worded differently. And I was young enough uh, and eager enough that I objected. And the arbitrator said, oh, I'm going to let it in and consider it for what it's worth. And it was about that point in my career that I realized I only have so many breaths left on this earth and I'm not going to waste any of them making objections in an arbitration hearing. And what that arbitrator said in way back in Idaho, long ago, is what this arbitrator is saying in Grand Rapids. I'll consider it. I'll give it whatever weight it is worth. Then the, back to our Grand Rapids case. The arbitrator then uh, says, lists a whole bunch of objections that both parties have made to the evidence that comes into, or that came in at the hearing. And the arbitrator says, ah, yeah, not so much for me again. Uh, quote, rules of evidence are not binding in arbitration. Arbitration is in many senses an extension of the collective bargaining process. It serves as a place to air grievances and grudges. It ought not to be hamstrung by the artificial rules of evidence. And in any event, with more than 40 years of experience, I am capable of separating the wheat from the chaff. Okay, that too is what most arbitrators will do. Um, maybe not as universally as with the first point I made about other arbitrators' opinions, but most arbitrators will let almost everything in and, uh, and just consider the evidence for what it is worth. Now, the third issue that I want to talk about that this kind of broad arbitration issue that this arbitrator looks at uh, is, I think, the most important one. Uh, and that is that the collective bargaining agreement didn't say a word about subcontracting. There was a management rights clause. It didn't say the employer could subcontract. There was a maintenance of benefits clause. It didn't prohibit the employer from subcontracting. And there was no article in the contract that said anything about subcontracting. And the employer makes the argument, well, that's the end of the case. There's nothing in the contract that subcontracting violates. And the arbitrator says, not so fast. Because you can read into the contract through the implications of several other clauses in the contract, a prohibition on subcontracting. Uh, and here... Here's what the arbitrator says. He says, this grievance arises, quote, from the intersection of different contractual provisions. And what are those provisions? A recognition clause, a management rights clause, and a maintenance of benefits clause. And even though none of them talk about subcontracting, I find that they at least require a careful analysis of the merits of the employer's subcontracting decision. So the case doesn't end. Now we need to look at the employer's justification. And uh, the arbitrator ends up concluding uh, that uh, there was not adequate justification. To be sure, the employer did a study 
and did the costing on the pros and cons of civilianization. And the arbitrator says, that's good. I'm glad you did that. And it shows that you acted in good faith, but, quote, it is not a license to renounce solemnly made promises. Told you you had a bit of a sense of humor, right? And the arbitrator also said, look, employer, you did this study. Why didn't you make a proposal during the last negotiations on subcontracting and subcontracting these three provisions. That's another important point here. Arbitrators find very important when the parties last had an opportunity to renegotiate their contract because arbitrators want to see past practices broken, if they are to be broken at all, through a mutual agreement at the bargaining table. And here the arbitrator is following that general trend once again, saying, employer, you'd done the study, you knew there were going to be cost savings, or you thought there were going to be cost savings uh, associated with us, uh, and you should have brought it up at the table. And then the arbitrator ends up concluding that there's merit on the union side here too. Uh, and I'm going to quote again, loss of inside jobs is not a trifle. Inside work is very important. For police, it is like becoming a fire inspector in the fire department. Availability of such assignments is a critical safety valve. It can protect and preserve a career that is under threat. Being a police officer or sergeant is a stressful job that comes with a long list of occupational hazards. All jobs are not fungible goods, interchangeable like peas in a pod. Having available inside jobs is an important benefit to the affected employees. And the arbitrator ends up concluding that the elimination of these posi uh, positions, uh, proposed elimination of the positions, uh, violates the collective bargaining agreement. Not much of a real remedy, the arbitrator just, because the employer hadn't uh, actually civilianized the positions yet, just gave notice. Uh, the arbitrator simply orders that the employer cease and desist uh, from its effort to subcontract these three provisions. So, good opinion that illustrates a number of very important uh, aspects of the way arbitrators look at different issues. One more case to talk about. It's a bit of a doozy. It's a due process case. You don't hear me talk about due process very much. And the reason for that is there's just not that much interesting stuff going on in the courts on due process. The rules of pre-disciplinary hearings have been set since the Supreme Court's opinion in Loudermill versus uh, City of Cleveland, or Cleveland Board of Education, sorry, uh, and in other states like California in a decision called Skelly. So the rules about you know, what the hearing has to look like and the amount of notice that the employee has to get and whether or not uh, due process requires a pre-termination hearing, if you have a post-termination opportunity to challenge the decision. All of those have just been set for so many years that there's really just not much going on. Uh, but this case uh, gets at something you don't see raised very often. 
And that is the potential bias of the ultimate decision maker and whether or not that can violate due process. So uh, what's going on? Uh, this is another firefighter case, uh, and this involves a fellow by the name of Jason Briley. He works for the uh, city of West Covina, that's in the LA area, and he's a deputy fire marshal. And he is supervised by a fellow whose name is Larry Whithorn. Uh, Whithorn, when all of this starts, was the fire marshal and an assistant fire chief. So Briley, uh, in 2014, starts the ball rolling by complaining to the city's HR director that Whithorn uh, and other city officials had failed to take appropriate action uh, when he, Briley, was reporting fire code violations. And in fact, that they had allowed a building permit to issue for development before plans had even passed fire inspection. Uh, the, the city takes this seriously. They hire a private firm uh, to investigate Briley's allegation. But while that investigation is uh, going on, Briley complains that Whithorn has now retaliated against him. How? He's canceled his scheduled overtime, he moved him into a smaller office, and he changed his take-home vehicle. You know, not, not world championship retaliation, but the sort of things that will get an employee's attention and phrases that courts use very often would be likely to deter an employee from making a similar complaint in the future. So now we have the original complaint and we have, in essence, a retaliation complaint. Uh, the firm finishes its investigations, sustains some of them, the allegations that Briley made, but largely does not. And uh, Whithorn uh, ends up saying that his working relationship with Riley had become strained as a result of it, and that Riley's charges were trumped up. And trumped up because Riley was trying to intimidate Whithorn. So uh, while all of this stuff is going on, the investigation and resolution of the allegations, the second complaint, uh, Whithorn uh, and others informed the city manager of multiple complaints against Briley involving allegations of misconduct and unprofessional behavior uh, and also untruthfulness. Whithorn then gets promoted. He's now fire chief. And guess what one of the first things he does is? He issues Briley a notice of termination. Uh, and Briley initiates an administrative appeal to the city's HR commission, as it's called. The HR commission uh, schedules hearings on Briley's uh, appeal, but before they get there, uh, Briley gets a lawyer who notifies the commission that Briley won't be proceeding with the appeal because doing so would be futile. Um, and uh, in fact, what, he, uh, what the decision maker points to is that the ultimate decision maker in the case, who is the uh, city manager, uh, is, has already found Briley's retaliation allegations to be unfounded. And because one attorney from the firm that served as the, in the city attorney's office, or asked the West Covina city attorney, 
had advised the city council in making that determination, while another attorney in the same firm serves as the HR Commission's counsel. Uh, so uh, Briley does not participate on his lawyer's advice in the HR Commission, and he's terminated. Briley sues and says, I'm the victim of uh, retaliation and violation of whistleblowing laws. The jury agrees, awards him $500,000 in economic damages, $2 million in non-economic damages for the past, and another million and a half dollars in future non-economic damages for a total of, make sure you're seated, $4 million. The city appeals, and the city's big argument on appeal is, you know what, Briley had a chance to appeal his termination to the HR Commission. He chose not to participate. He failed to exhaust his administrative remedies. And that's the issue that goes to the, uh, the, the eventually to the California Court of Appeals. And, uh, and by this time, the focus of the California Court of Appeals is back on Whithorn, who's the fire chief, right? Because it turns out that the city's rules require Whithorn to review the HR Commission's findings with the city manager, and then the city manager could approve or modify the decisions with respect to Briley. Uh, and here's what the uh, Court of Appeals ends up saying. No obligation to exhaust the administrative remedies because of this exception uh, that you need to have people who play a meaningful role in the decision-making process be unbiased. Uh, and to allow a biased person to be involved in decision-making essentially is a due process violation. Here, I'm going to quote from the court's opinion. Whithorn's expected role in deciding Briley's appeal presented an unacceptable risk of bias that excused Briley from exhausting this remedy. Given both Whithorn's personal embroilment in the controversy and the significant animosity between Whithorn and Briley stemming from the same uh, controversy. Under the city's municipal code, the court said, Whithorn was to review the HR Commission's findings and recommendations from the city manager. This procedure would have given a Whithorn a key role in deciding Briley's appeal, thus failing to satisfy the standards of due process and excusing Briley from exhausting this remedy. Uh, and so the court upholds the $4 million judgment. Uh, I, when I read this case, uh, I ended up, my first reaction after reading it was to say, that is a gutsy play for Briley and his lawyer to make the deliberate decision not to uh, go through the HR commission, not to exhaust their administrative remedies. Uh, and I'm not sure I would have given the same advice, but hey, uh, it worked, right? Uh, and the court ends up saying this violation of due process means no obligation to go through the HR commission. Well, that's it for the August 2021 edition of First Thursday. Uh, we hope you join us next month for 
for several things. Uh, we're going to have another premium podcast. Also, we're going to be doing our seminar on uh, grievances and arbitration in September in Las Vegas. It'll be at the Luxor Hotel. Uh, we're going to be very socially distanced. And for, uh, for those of you interested in coming, uh, Clark County in Nevada has reimposed mask uh, rules so everybody in the seminar uh, will have to be masked. We have very large rooms, so social distancing won't be a problem. Uh, and of course, we hope you join us for the September edition of First Thursday. No doubt there will be a lot of stuff that will happen over the course of the next 30 days. Have a great rest of the summer, uh, and this is Will Aitchison signing off.